The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. This morning's scripture reading comes from Philemon, verses 19 to 25. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it, to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Ephorus, my fellow prisoner in Jesus Christ, sends greetings to you, and so to Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thank you. My name is Lee Eric Vesco. I'm the Director of Discipleship here, and it's a pleasure to be with you here this morning. It is May 29th, holiday weekend, and for many of us, uh, it is a a time of remembrance, but for another group of us, it marks the, the start of summer. I know there were students in here who celebrated the fact that their last day of school was earlier this week. I have two sons that are living their best lives right now. It's the start of summer. Their cousins are in town. And again, let the fun begin. And every year the summer rolls around, I can anticipate getting a question from my kids. And it's related to the finishing of the school year. It was just a couple of weeks ago when one of my kids asked me, Hey, Dad, you know how we get prizes at the end of the year for finishing the school year? I said, no. And notice he said for finishing the school year, not for finishing well, but just for finishing, just for finishing the school year. But truthfully, I have no one to blame but myself for this mindset. I'm the one who set this precedent. Way back when, my son must have been in the first grade, and he was bemoaning the fact that he had so much reading to do at the conclusion of the school year. And I told him, hey, if you do this and you do it well, I'm going to give you a prize. You're going to get a prize for this. What kind of prize, Dad? He said, a big one. How big? I hadn't thought this through. And so I said, a new bicycle. And I could see my wife in the background. Her jaw dropped all the way to the floor because she had used prizes as motivation too, but she used things like a cookie or a quarter. So I came in pretty hot with a bicycle. And as soon as I said it, I could see it. It It's just, oh, what have I done here? But again, it just went, I shot too high. But to this day, I'm still entertained by these types of questions along the lines of, hey, I think the prize I should get for finishing third grade or eighth grade or whatever the case may be. No, 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 no prizes. There's no prizes. This is your job now. It's your job to do well and and help out around the house, not because you get a a, a prize, but because it's it's your job. And, And you should want to do well. You should want this. And I also tell them when I go out to cut the grass, for example, I don't get paid for that. No one gives me $10. No one gives me $10 to get the grass. My wife will go out there too, and she'll plant flowers and make it look really lovely, and and no one is paying us to do any of that. In fact, it costs us something to do that. We go out there of our own free will. We we, we labor in the yard without expectation of, of repayment or prize. Why do we do that? Why do we do that? We're not doing it because someone told us to do it, so why are we doing it? It could be any number of reasons, honestly. 
We, we don't want the neighbors to get mad at us for letting the grass grow too long, or, or we don't want the property to devalue, or maybe, just maybe, get this, maybe we go out there because we like it, because we enjoy it. We, we go out there because we, we want to be out there. But guess what? When I was a kid, my dad told me also, he told me I had to go cut the grass. Why did I cut the grass back then? Not because I enjoyed it, but because my dad said, go out there and cut the grass. And that was the end of the discussion. I was told to do it. Here's the point. Somewhere along the way between being a 12-year-old and now, somewhere in my adulthood, my motivation changed. I'm not cutting the grass anymore because I'm going to earn allowance or even because my dad told me. I have a whole new set of motivations. And one of those reasons just might be for the joy of doing it. Now, every analogy breaks down after a point. Now, sometimes it's a real hassle to go out there and, and cut the grass. I, I, you know, I'll admit that. But again, my motivation for doing it comes from somewhere else now. I have a new center. I have a new true north when it comes to doing things like maintaining the household. And it's no longer because I've just been told to do it. As we take one last look at Paul's letter to Philemon this week. We just read for you a moment ago the conclusion of that letter. And in that conclusion, we find a brief repetition of some of the themes that he's, he, he made his request to Philemon. He even states, confidence of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you'll do even more than I say. So what is he saying? Let's review one more time. One more time. Onesimus. I'm sure Philemon remembers Onesimus, a bondservant, a slave. Philemon had claim on Onesimus. The exact nature of that claim we're not told, but what we do know is Onesimus left without permission. He left without permission from the one who had claim on him. He didn't want to be there. And presumably, he might even have stolen something from Philemon as he left. And then somehow, some way, Onesimus finds himself perhaps in the very same prison cell as the Apostle Paul. Now, there's not universal agreement from the scholars on exactly how Onesimus and Paul crossed paths. Perhaps Onesimus on the run was captured and put into prison. Uh, perhaps Onesimus intentionally sought out the Apostle Paul as a means of helping his cause. We just don't know. But the Lord saw fit to put these two together, Onesimus and Paul. And in so doing, Onesimus became a child of the living God. No longer a slave to sin, but free in Christ, a man of little resource now, for him has been secured a permanent place at the king's table. Earlier in the chapter, Paul says, formerly, formerly he was useless to you, Philemon. The language there suggests a loss. He was no prophet of you. He was no prophet to you, Philemon, perhaps because he had stolen something. Or perhaps it was just that Philemon lost someone on which he made claim. But Paul says, he is indeed useful to me and you. He's indeed profitable now to me and you. He ministers to me and you. This is why Paul tells him, refresh my heart in Christ, Philemon. You see, at the start of his request, excuse me, at the heart of his request, what Paul is saying, what you need to understand, Philemon, is, is what I'm asking you to do isn't just a benefit to Onesimus. It's not just a benefit to Onesimus and me. It's a benefit to all of us. To Onesimus, me, you, and the whole church. 
The letter is addressed to Philemon, but also it's addressed to the church that meets in his house. And in that signature, he names a number of other brothers in Christ. These people are sending you greeting too, Philemon. The whole church is watching because it affects us all. You see, what we have here in this short letter from Paul to Philemon, just one chapter in the whole book, is a lesson for the church. This is a lesson for the church. It's a lesson on becoming a new creation in Christ and the sanctification, the process of, of being made holy, that comes along with becoming a new creation. So those are the two headings that I'm going to talk to you today about, just two headings, a new creation and our sanctification. A new creation and our sanctification. Paul's explicit request to Philemon was an audacious one. It certainly wasn't the norm, not for the time. He asked Philemon to not only release his claim on Onesimus, but he asked Philemon to then send him back to Paul. It's believed that perhaps Onesimus was the very one delivering the letter to the church and to Philemon. Release your claim on him. Release your claim on him, Philemon, and send him back to me. And isn't it interesting the way that Paul frames his request? Have you ever heard someone say, not to sound rude, but that is the universal signal for something that's about to be said that is really rude every time. Not to sound rude, but anticipate the rude comment. Here it comes. At first glance, it sounds like Paul is doing something similar. He says, I'm bold enough to command you to do what's required. And then once again, in the conclusion letter, I'll repay you whatever he owes to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. He's not saying nothing. He just said it, right? It's like Paul is saying, not to sound like an apostle, but I am an apostle. You see, to be an apostle in terms of authority in the church, it's fair to say there isn't a greater authority. The concept of apostle doesn't find its origin in the Bible. In ancient times, even before the first century, a king, by his own royal authority, would grant apostleship to the one he would designate. And only the king could grant that authority, and he had to do so in person. And when he would send the apostle out to be his representative, when he would go speak to another nation or another kingdom to deliver his royal message of the king, it was expected that the apostle's words would be received with the full weight and authority of the king, as if the king himself were speaking there. There was no distinction made. The apostles' words were the king's words, no less. And in the same manner, when Christ granted one apostolic authority, he did so personally, in person. And when he sent his apostles out, their words carried with them the full weight of Christ's words himself. It was the same authority that the Lord granted the, the prophets in the Old Testament. When a prophet in the Old Testament would say, thus saith the Lord, they weren't giving you their take on it. They weren't giving you their impressions of the words. They were delivering the words of the Lord himself, nothing less. So you see, when Paul, an apostle, what he carried with him in terms of authority was the full weight of Christ's authority when he speaks to the church. And so Paul gives Philemon a subtle reminder. You know who I am, right? I could command you to do what you ought to do, Philemon. I could do that. I have that authority. But I'm not going to do that. Why? Why wouldn't Paul just tell him what to do? Do the right thing, Philemon, because I said so. The book of Philemon, believe it or not, is the third shortest book in the Bible by word count. At 335 words, the, third short, the first shortest is 3 John at 219 words. But the book of Philemon could have won the title for shortest book of the Bible. Dear Philemon... Release your claim on Onesimus and send him back to me because I said so. It's the right thing to do. Sincerely, Paul. 25 words by my count. 
Philemon, I could just command you to do this, but I'm not going to do that. I'm asking you to remember that you, Philemon, have a new center. You have a new motivation for doing the things that you do. Philemon, I could just command you to do this because I'm an apostle of Christ, but, but it's not the apostle asking you to do this. It's Paul, prisoner also for Christ Jesus. I want you to think about that for a second. He's saying, I'm not coming to you from a place of strength, though I do have that. I'm coming to you from a place of weakness, humility. I'm willingly and freely setting aside my rightful claim on you, Philemon. I'm releasing that claim for what reason? For the sake of love. Not, not because I have to, but because I want to. I'm operating from a new center. In verse 14, Paul says, I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. He affirms that thought again at the conclusion. I know you'll do even more than I ask, Philemon. How does he know that? How does he know that? Speaking of mowing the lawn, it was just a few weeks ago when I was out cutting the grass, and I had just finished cutting the backyard, and I was on my way up to do the front yard, when one of my boys comes up to me and says, I'll do the front yard for you. Why? <laughs> he said, because I'm a nice guy. And I didn't say this out loud, but I was thinking in my head, who are you? What have you done with my son? You look just like him. But you see, I shouldn't be surprised by things like this. He's growing up. He's maturing. Maybe some of the things that his mother and I repeat to him over and over and over and over again are actually starting to sink in. And perhaps, yes, by the grace of God, he too is operating from a new center. So what is this new center? What is this reorienting of our lives that flips things on their heads and gets us to operate in ways that most of the time are countercultural? Not only that, it even goes against the very instincts that are embedded deep down inside of us, the instincts that tells us to assert ourselves, grab what we can while we can. What causes Paul to say, I could come to you with authority, but I'm not going to do that. I'm going to appeal to you from a higher standard, Philemon. I'm asking you to lay down your life. Why? Why would he say Yes. Paul is recapitulating a concept that he wrote about to the church at Corinth just a few years before this. He said in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. In the verses just before that, Paul is laboring to tell this struggling church, if you're a believer in Christ, if you've placed your trust in Christ through his work to make you right before the Father, then that means you have died with Christ and you no longer live for yourself. You no longer live for yourself. You have a new center. You know you no longer of this world. Your citizenship lies elsewhere. Your old sin nature has been nailed to the cross with Christ. It was buried with him. And just as Jesus was raised up by the Father, we are also raised up. As he tells us in Romans, we are raised up to walk in newness of life. You're a new, you're a new creation. Onesimus is a new creation, just like you, Philemon. And, and Paul's language there is very intentional when he speaks of, of, of being a new creation. It should conjure up images of the opening pages of the Bible. In the beginning, we're told, the earth was without form and void. There was nothing. And then God spoke. And the whole universe was created 
brought forth from nothing. So when Paul talks about being a new creation, that's what he means. Think about that. You're a completely new creation. He put something in you where there previously wasn't anything. That means you have impulses to do something where you previously had no impulse before. You have a desire to do good things where there previously was no desire to do good things. You have a desire to lay down your life when when previously you had no desire to lay down your life. Instead of saying, what can I get from you so that I can advance my own cause, you now say, my life for yours. Paul is saying, Philemon, I, I don't want to invoke my authority because I know you know what it means to be a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. And Onesimus is a new man. He's a new creation. You see, Paul could have appealed to the Deuteronomic law and insist that Onesimus stay with him. The law allowed for that. On the other hand, the Roman law forbade you from harboring a fugitive slave. But instead, what does Paul do? He doesn't look to the Mosaic law. He doesn't look to the Roman law. Instead, he makes his appeal to Philemon on the basis of Onesimus's new status. And the new, new, and the new man says, I use my authority not as something to wield against you. I set it aside knowing you will do the same. Because this is who we are in Christ. Philemon, I'm asking you to lay aside your claim on Christ. He's a new creation. Observe what I've done, Philemon. I'm, a, I'm an apostle, but now a prisoner. Do you know that this is the only letter that we have from Paul where he identifies himself as a prisoner? Not as an apostle, I, Paul the apostle, but as a prisoner. But not as a prisoner of Rome, he says, as a prisoner for Christ Jesus. It's as if Paul is telling Philemon, I've set every claim to anything I had aside. The old man died. Now the new man is a prisoner for Christ. I I lay claim to nothing but Christ. But even more, it's not just Paul simply telling Philemon, hey, do as I do, be like me. I gave it all up, so should you. No, he's really saying my life is patterned after Christ. Your life, Philemon, is patterned after Christ. Paul is walking in the footsteps of Christ Jesus. We, We read in Philippians 2 that it was Jesus himself who Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. He divested himself of of every right, every privilege he had being seated next to the Father in the heavens, and he set every claim to anything he had aside, and he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. God of the universe, a servant. And it's that idea that undergirds this whole letter. Paul is being conformed to the likeness of Christ. He's walking in the footsteps of Christ, just like Philemon, just like Onesimus. The old man has died, and now the new man lives. Dear friends, can I tell you something? If you've put your trust in Jesus, then you are being conformed to the likeness of Christ right now. Right now. Right in this moment. You are being conformed to the likeness of Christ. In fact, he's never not doing that. You are walking in his footstep. The old man has died and the new man is being raised and is being conformed into his likeness. You begin to want to be like Christ more and more. You want to do as he did. And yes, some days you reflect that better than others. But as you're being sanctified, you you increasingly gain awareness that this is what the Father is doing in you, making you like his son always, every moment. By the time Paul gets to the conclusion of his request after he's made his appeal, he says this in verse 
15. And I love this. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. This sentiment uh, has echoes of, of what Joseph told his brothers all the way back in Genesis. Uh, do you remember Joseph from Genesis? He, he was trapped by his brothers. He was then thrown into a pit because of their jealousy of him. Instead of killing him, they decided to sell him off and, and, uh, to a band of travelers who, who took him to Egypt. And after he was in Egypt, he found himself in the service of a man named Potiphar. And just when things started to turn around, he was falsely accused by Potiphar's wife of making advances at her, and as a result, he's thrown into prison, and he stays there for at least a couple of years. He's in prison not for days, not for weeks, for years for something that he didn't do. To make a long story short, he finally made his way out of prison by interpreting the dreams of Pharaoh, and in so doing, he saved Egypt from an impending famine. And Pharaoh was so grateful that he made Joseph the second most powerful man in the world. So from that time, from the time that Joseph was kidnapped by his brothers to the time that he was finally a free and honored man, some 13 years had passed. What do you suppose Joseph might have done if he ever got the chance to face his brothers again? It stole 13 years from him. Well, guess what? He did. He did get a chance to face them again. They came to him desperate, needing relief from the famine, needing mercy. And when Joseph finally came face to face with his brothers, how did he respond? What claim did he have on his brothers? What rights did Joseph have to exercise in the moment? There wasn't a person around who wouldn't have objected if he simply said, off with their heads. I mean, they trapped him, they sold him, they, they, were, they were responsible for years of imprisonment. Who would blame him? Instead, what did he say? Genesis 50, 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. It sounds a lot like Paul telling Philemon, for perhaps this is why he parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. But I want you to understand something. This isn't God just making lemonade out of lemons. This isn't God doing his best work with the hand that he's been dealt. This is, this is God's sovereign design unfolding before our eyes, and this is the miracle of sanctification. Paul reminds us again in Romans, I know you've heard this, and, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Not some things, all things. All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. He's always sanctifying you. He's always conforming you to the image of his son in every circumstance, however miserable we might be in the moment, whatever sins have been committed against us. He even uses those circumstances to make us like Christ. Friends, all this tells us is that there is hope for everyone who is in Christ. There isn't a wasted moment in your life. Every moment the Father is about the business of conforming you to the image of his son. Even in the midst of mundane activities like cutting the grass or, or planting flowers, you reflect back the image of the one from whom you are cast. This is true even and especially for the one who suffers. Whatever circumstance you might be in, through the mistreatment and injustice that was laid upon Christ, he saved us. The Father was most glorified through the suffering of Christ. He reconciled people like you and me to himself through Christ's suffering. And this is the pattern into which people like you and me are being cast. 
And with this understanding, Paul makes his request, Philemon, I know you understand this, but let me say it anyway. If Onesimus is a new creation, then that means he's a brother, a beloved brother. And isn't it interesting? You'll notice that beloved brother is the same thing that, that Paul calls Philemon in the opening of his letter. It's, it's the implication there is, 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 is that Philemon is beloved to Paul, so Philemon should also regard Onesimus as a beloved brother as well, following Paul's model of loving his, his Christian brother. Philemon, you're both now people who have put to death the old man and have been raised in the newness of Christ. You're the same. Whenever you look into the eyes of another Christian, you're looking into the eyes of someone who's being sanctified just like you. We're not there yet, none of us. None of us are there yet, but we will be. And when you look into their eyes, you're getting a foretaste of what's to come. You're looking at someone you're going to spend eternity with. You're looking into the eyes of someone who will have a seat just like yours at the wedding feast of the Lamb. And not only that, but you're going to get to spend all of eternity with the best possible version of that person. The one who's been perfected and conformed into the likeness of Christ. My, my friend Russ Ramsey, who's the pastor of the, the Cool Springs campus, he and I have a, a fake feud going on. Uh, we do this for our own entertainment as well as for the entertainment of others. And he said something to me really nice the other day. I was quite shocked. He said, I can't wait to spend eternity with the best version of you. <laughs> wait for it, right? <laughs> you see what he was saying as he was laughing under his breath? I can't wait to spend eternity with that version of you because I'm a little weary of this version of you, right? You and I, we look into each other's eyes and joyfully anticipate what awaits us, completion in Christ. We think of the reality that awaits us and we allow that to be reflected in how we live right now. We're reflections of Christ right now. My oldest son is at an age where he seems to be eating around the clock and I hope he's enjoying himself. <laughs> He's 16 years old. He can't eat food fast enough. He, doesn't, he eats it all. He doesn't gain a pound. In fact, I can't tell you how many times we've been at the dinner table eating. We're in the process and in the action of, of putting food into our mouths. And he then stops and says, hey, what's for dinner tomorrow? Maybe we could enjoy this meal that we're eating, you know, right now. And, and, you know, I think I know where he gets it. We'll be on vacation, and we'll be sitting, you know, on the beach or somewhere in the process of vacationing, and my wife is already planning the next vacation. We're, we're, we're literally in beach chairs, and we're, and we're getting options about uh, and ideas of where we might go next. But, hey, hey, maybe we just enjoy this vacation that we're on right now, right? You know what this is? In both cases, this is a joyful anticipation. It's so looking forward to what awaits us that it just comes overflowing out of us. They can't help but anticipate what's next. Do you look at your brothers and sisters in Christ that way? Do you look at them with joyful anticipation, knowing what awaits them in Christ? Do you help them in such a way that moves them one step closer to the reality that waits? What if we always looked at each other that way? What if we always looked at each other in such a way that, that reflected the joy of what we know awaits them? If we always looked at each other that way, would we ever resent one another? Would we ever feel competitive with one another? Would we ever cease to protect one another? Would we ever fail to provide for one another? 
would we ever withhold forgiveness from one another? When we look at each other, what if we never sought what we might gain, but what if we always looked at each other at how we could sacrifice ourselves for one another? What can I give up for your sake? How can I bear your burden right now? What if we all said like Paul, who again is just reflecting the character of Christ when he said, whatever he owes you, charge it to me. What better image can we take with us to the table as we approach the Lord's Supper? When Christ looked at you and me, he didn't say pay up. He didn't try to claim what was rightfully owed to him. Instead, he said, whatever they owe, charge it to me. He willingly accepted the debt of his people and paid that debt himself. May we do the same ever and always for one another. Let's pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, we we thank you for this letter that you've preserved and saved for us. And our prayer is simple. Make us like your son. Help us to reflect the reality of what we know awaits us. Help us to reflect the reality of what we know, the death of the old man and the newness of life in the new. Thank you that you've given us hope in in all circumstances. Help us to reflect this joyful anticipation to a world that, especially now, so desperately needs it. We ask this not for our sake, but for yours, and it's in Christ Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.